0: Good morning. Seems like the popular thing to do this Thanksgiving in our constantly negative cancel culture is to sort of trash talk the pilgrims and portray them as you know greedy colonizers whose sole purpose was to intentionally decimate the Native American population in order to steal all their land. Gone are any poignant stories of Europeans and Native Americans meeting in peace to share a meal after a hard year of grief and loss and Near starvation. There will probably even be some who disparage any showings of Charlie Brown's Thanksgiving special because it perpetuates those happy stereotypes. And one step beyond that negative spin, I even saw an editorial in the Boston Globe this week that said that this year we should just cancel Thanksgiving altogether because it's all pandemic, closed schools, aborted family gatherings. The author said we have nothing to be thankful for. Nothing. And the author thought the pilgrims would agree that we should wait until something better comes along and then we can be thankful. Well, I think we need Thanksgiving this year, maybe, maybe now more than ever. We need to be thankful to God and the difficult circumstances of this past year may actually help us to better identify with the thankful people who gathered together at that first Thanksgiving feast. I'm sure probably outside and socially distanced. I think what the pilgrims really teach us is that if you're, if you're waiting until your circumstances are perfect before you can be thankful to God, you're going to be waiting a very long time. I imagine that the author of that Boston Globe editorial will probably be, I don't know, a perpetual sourpuss no matter what good comes his way, that his glass will always be half empty. Life will never be perfect. And so the challenge is to find joy and peace and purpose and gratitude in today's circumstances, in today's hardship, not to wait for some idyllic future. We have to learn to be thankful and grateful in the middle of hard times because that's what gives us the determination we need to face life's challenges. It was Winston Churchill who once said, if you're going through hell, keep going. Don't quit in the middle, that's a bad move. That just leaves you stuck in your misery. And as Dr. Martin Luther King once said, if you can't fly, then run. If you can't run, then walk. If you can't walk, then crawl. But whatever you do, you have to keep moving forward. Moving forward. Being thankful helps you do that. You keep going and you keep being thankful for what you do have and all the ways God is blessing you right now. That's how God can energize you in hard times. That's how God will will sort of build positive momentum into your life. You join with the psalmist in saying Psalm 107, which says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his love endures forever. So this week, let's be thankful. Let's go back. Let's go back and remember the year 1621 when the Plymouth colonists And the Wampanoag Native Americans shared this autumn harvest feast that is known today as the first Thanksgiving celebration in the colonies. It was in September of the previous year, 1620, that a small ship called the Mayflower left Plymouth, England carrying 102 passengers. They were religious refugees who were fleeing severe persecution in England. They were Protestants, Calvinists like us Presbyterians who did not subscribe to the teachings or the political authority of the Church of England. And so they were called dissenters or separatists, and they decided to risk everything to seek a new home where they could freely practice their faith and raise their families. Now, there were others on board the Mayflower who were lured to the journey by the promise of prosperity and land ownership in the new world. But together, after a treacherous and uncomfortable crossing of the Atlantic Ocean, that lasted 66 days. Over two months at sea crammed into the hold of that ship. They finally dropped anchor near the tip of Cape Cod, but they were far north of their intended destination, which was the mouth of the Hudson River. One month later, the Mayflower crossed Massachusetts Bay where these pilgrims, as they're now called, began the work of establishing a village at Plymouth. And throughout that first brutal winter, most of the colonists remained on board the ship where they suffered from exposure, the cold, scurvy, outbreaks of all kinds of contagious diseases. Less than half, less than half of the Mayflower's original passengers and crew lived to see their first New England spring. Less than half. So you have to imagine the grief as parents lost children and spouses, as children lost one parent, maybe both parents, and lost siblings and their anxiety for the future, wondering if disease would carry them all to the grave. They didn't just worry if things would ever get better, they worried if they would survive at all. In March, the remaining settlers moved ashore, where they received kind of an astonishing visit from an Abenaki Native American. Several days later, he returned with another Native American who spoke the king's English perfectly. His name was Squanto, a member of the Pawtuxic tribe who had been kidnapped by an English sea captain and sold into slavery before going to London and returning to his homeland on an exploratory expedition. Seeing how weakened the pilgrims were by malnutrition and illness, Squanto took pity on them, taught him how to cultivate corn, extract sap from the maple trees, catch fish in the rivers, and just other kinds of basic survival skills. He also helped the settlers forge an alliance with the Wampanoag, a a local tribe of Native Americans. And that alliance uh, would endure for more than 50 years, 50 years of peace and mutual prosperity. Now, sadly, that original alliance turned out to be one uh, one of probably the only positive example of harmony between the European colonists and the Native Americans. But it began with one man reaching beyond his circle to welcome people who were different. In November of 1621, after the Pilgrim's first uh, corn harvest was successful, uh, Governor William Bradford organized the celebratory feast and invited the group of Native Americans to join them, including the Wampanoag chief, Massasoit. That event is now remembered as America's first Thanksgiving, although the pilgrims themselves, I don't think, really used that term for it at the time. But it was quite a feast, lasted three whole days. And though there's no record of exactly, you know, what foods were consumed at the celebration, I'm sure marshmallow, jello, and pumpkin pie were, had to be on the menu, had to be. Maybe the stuffing too. In spite of what happened between the colonialists and the Native Americans in later generations, The real hero of the story is Squanto, this man who had every right to be fearful of the English and the Europeans who had previously enslaved him. In 1614, Squanto and 19 other Indians were kidnapped by Thomas Hunt. He was an English explorer who sold them as slaves in Spain. Eventually Squanto was purchased by a Spanish monk who gave him his freedom and then taught him about the Christian faith, eventually sent him to England where he worked in the stables of a man named John Slaney. Slaney saw that Squanto was just so homesick and and out of compassion then he he paid for Squanto's passage as a free man back to the New World in 1619. By now Squanto was fluent in English And once on dry land, back in New England, Squanto went back to where his village was located, expected to be welcomed with open arms by his kin, only to discover that the whole village had died of a plague, probably smallpox introduced by European traders. He lived for a short time with the neighboring Wampanoag tribe, but he never really felt at home with them and left to live on his own in the woods. And then there was that first brutal winter for the pilgrims where half their number died and spring came and when the Wampanoag chief Massasoit decided to offer friendship to the new settlers, he asked Squanto to serve as an intermediary since he knew the newcomer's language. The pilgrims were astonished to meet an Indian who came out of the woods and greeted them in perfect English. So Squanto proved to literally be a godsend. He taught the pilgrims how to grow Indian corn, other vegetables, how to fish, how to use the fish for fertilizer. We know that story. Their survival is directly attributable to this one man. And Governor Bradford later wrote that Squanto was, and I quote, a special instrument sent of God for their good, unquote. Years later, when Squanto caught a fever and was dying, Bradford records in his journal that he asked the governor to pray for him that he might go to the Englishman's God in heaven. Now, if you think about it, Squanto had had every reason. He could have been exceedingly bitter uh, and have a real hateful for white people. I mean, how would you feel if you were abducted and sold as a slave in a foreign country, forced to learn the language of your captors, return home only to discover your whole family and tribe dead from a disease introduced by your former captors. I mean, I can't say I would blame him for hating the English. Somehow Squanto found it within himself to be able to reach beyond his own circumstances, to see a common bond with people who were different from himself, regardless of race and skin color and and culture. Who knows, he may have associated the Christian pilgrims with the kind-hearted Christian monk who rescued him from slavery in Spain. We we don't know. We don't know what gave him such a compassionate heart. He had every reason to be bitter, to be fearful, to be hateful, but somehow he put all of those motions aside to help some fellow human beings who were in dire need. Friends, it takes someone like that for any kind of healing to take place in society. Whenever healing is needed between individuals or groups, between races, between political parties, it always takes someone who's willing to be first. First, first to risk, first to walk across the room, first to extend that hand of friendship, first to transcend their own internal feelings of maybe prejudice or distrust. In our scripture from the book of Acts we've been reading, we've been following the the apostle Peter who turns out to be that kind of person. If you were with us in worship last week, you'll remember we were in Acts 10, where we saw how Peter was the first to reach across the racial and cultural divide between Christians and those who were, uh, I mean, Jewish Christians and those who were not Jewish by racial background, the Gentiles, those were Greeks and Romans, all people who had no connection to the covenant history of the people of Israel. Remember how I said that we could not overestimate the importance of what Peter did in chapter 10. God had orchestrated his encounter with a Roman military commander named Cornelius. And for the very first time in human history, the gospel of Jesus Christ was deliberately preached to Gentiles, to non-Jewish people. And today, we who have no Jewish heritage, we owe a great debt of gratitude to Peter who had the vision To look outside his circle of his own heritage, of his own upbringing, to share the gospel with people who were different from him, people whom he should have seen as enemies. Remember up until this point, 99.9% of the early followers of Jesus were Jewish. They weren't starting a new faith to compete with Judaism. Uh, Christ was the fulfillment of all their Jewish expectations. He was the Jewish Messiah. So they carried with them their Jewish heritage, and the Jewish community was a very well-insulated bubble within the Roman Empire. They were separate, they were distinct, they were given special privileges because they saw the non-Jewish world, the Gentiles, as a real threat to their way of life. They stayed apart in order to keep their Jewish identity intact. That was what they thought God wanted them to do. So for generations, they walled themselves off from other people. They had so many rules about how to relate to the Gentiles, but it all boiled down to this. Jews and non-Jews just don't mix ever. There were no social contacts. If you as a Jew had to, had to speak to a Gentile, like in business, then you had to go through a rigorous ceremonial cleansing because Gentiles were unclean. They were religiously dirty. The Jewish community was a tight-knit group. It was a closed circle. And then Jesus came on the scene. Jesus said, it's now time to step outside the circle. And it shocked people. It's now time to open the circle of God's love to all people, not just the Jews. And Jesus demonstrated this by the way that he lived. He was always looking for the people who were on the fringes to bring them in, oops, to bring them in, Jews and non-Jews alike. He he spoke with the hated Samaritans. He, He healed the daughter of a Roman commander, one of the oppressors, part of the occupation army. He brought brought sanity to a man from Jordan, outside of Israel, who was afflicted with a legion of demons. Jesus interacted with all sorts of non-Jews and welcomed them into God's family. Those who were outcasts and social misfits, those with no prestige or influence, but also those who were rich and powerful. He welcomed them too, not just the outsiders. Jesus welcomed the one-percenters too, because in Jesus there was just this level playing field that they were all within the circle of his love. Jesus always had his eye open to who wasn't there, who wasn't in the room. In John 10:16, Jesus says, "'I have other sheep who are not of this sheep pen. "'I must bring them also. "'They too will listen to my voice, "'and there will be one flock and one shepherd.'" Jesus had this divine must, this urgency in his heart for people outside uh, Judaism, a divine imperative. An urgency to include all people within the circle of his grace. And so Jesus expanded the circle and drew people in. He welcomed them into the safety of God's mercy. He challenged his followers to do the same. Remember the Great Commission given to the disciples after the resurrection, Matthew 28:19: Go and make disciples of all nations. That's literally all ethnicities. Go and make disciples from all ethnic groups. This was new, this was a command to break out of their racial prejudice, their racial exclusivity, and see the value of every person in the eyes of their creator. Jesus was saying, okay, boys, you saw me do it. Now it's your turn to do it, go get it. And Peter was the first one to break the ice. He broke the racial and cultural sound barrier. He faced his own fears, his own prejudices. He did what he knew God wanted him to do. He embraced Cornelius. And all those who had gathered at Cornelius' home, Peter embraced them as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so a Jew and a Roman soldier, they now shared a higher loyalty that trumped the human divisions that kept them apart. They had something bigger in common. They had the grace of Christ. And the grace of Christ, that was a greater power in their lives than all the other cultural barriers that made them enemies. But not everybody felt that way. Not everybody rejoiced at what happened. Not everybody was so eager to welcome the Gentiles into the fold. Peter gets recalled to Jerusalem. He's got some explaining to do. But Peter is up to the challenge, and I like the way Acts 1 or Acts 11 verses 1 through 3 is translated in the message version of the New Testament. It goes like this. The news traveled fast, and in no time the leaders and friends back in Jerusalem heard about it, heard that the non-Jewish outsiders were now in When Peter got back to Jerusalem, some of his old associates, concerned about circumcision, called him on the carpet. What do you think you're doing? Rubbing shoulders with that crowd, eating what is prohibited, ruining your good name. So Peter, starting from the beginning, laid it all out for them, step by step. Peter recounts the whole story of what happened in Cornelius' home, especially the climax when the Holy Spirit falls on these new Gentile friends, just as the Spirit did in Jerusalem at Pentecost. That was proof positive in his mind. And then it continues in verse 17. Peter says, So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praise God saying, so then even the Gentiles, even to the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Peter had the guts to do two very important things. First, to step outside his own circle of comfort, to reach out a hand of friendship and fellowship to someone who was his polar opposite. That was last week's message. But he also had the courage to go against his own people, the people in his own circle who were dead set against him making that move. It would have been so much easier, so much safer for him just to go along with the attitude of exclusivity that kept Gentiles like Cornelius and his family on the outside. I'm sure when he got back to Jerusalem, the peer pressure to just go along to get along was very intense. These were his friends. These were his this was his nest. This was, these were his people. These were the folks who, who supported him. And what he did challenged their set pattern, to challenge their way of seeing things, challenged their basic identity, even how they viewed God, to do what he knew God wanted him to do. Peter was willing to risk losing friends. He risked their displeasure, risked ridicule, risked their criticism, risked their condemnation. But he learned one very important lesson. Sometimes doing what is right, doing what God wants, will set you against your own people. Go and make disciples of all nations. You know, we love that verse, but do we do it? The followers of Jesus probably love that saying too, but as we read the book of Acts, we realize that a lot of them were still stuck at first base, still entrenched in their Jewish bubble. They needed to recognize, as we do today, that we are on a search and rescue mission for Christ. There are people all around us in our own neighborhoods who are in desperate need of the saving love of Jesus Christ. You don't have to go overseas. Yet often they are outside our circle. Often many Christians are living within this closed system of their own echo chamber where it's comfortable and people all agree with each other. They've given up the search and the rescue. They don't have any contact with people who are outside or with people who may rub them the wrong way. A church can actually be a place where new people are treated like strangers, only welcomed if they already fit a certain mold. And we can't let that happen at New Providence Presbyterian Church because we are living in a time of tremendous experimentation and innovation in Christian ministry brought about by the COVID crisis, and that's good. We're learning to do ministry in new ways that are are difficult and uncomfortable because we've never done it this way before. And the Lord is blessing what we're doing. And as difficult as it is to do during a pandemic, you know, with our lockdowns and shutdowns and distancing and all the rest, we have to be willing to keep looking outside our circle and to see who's there. If you're in middle school or high school, ask yourself, who's not involved? Who doesn't feel welcomed? Who feels on the outside? Adults, same thing in your small group. Are you actively inviting visitors or newcomers to join you, even through Zoom? Are you like the uh, well-kept secret? Are you just an exclusive little club? Do you have your eyes open to see the people who are on the edges? Do you have your heart open to be the ones who might break the ice and welcome? You see, we're all circle drawers. We're all circle drawers. We draw a circle whenever we encounter another person. We draw that circle one way or the other. Edwin Markham wrote a little poem about that. It goes this way. He drew a circle that shut me out. Heretic, rebel, a thing to flout. But love and I had the wit to win. We drew a circle and took him in. Are you drawing circles that exclude? Because of race, because of a political party, because of status, because of whatever? For some reason, you draw a circle around your life and it puts others on the outside. Or can you be the kind of person who draws a circle that welcomes them in. Doesn't mean you excuse bad behavior. Doesn't mean you turn a blind eye to inappropriate behavior. Doesn't mean you condone sinful or immoral behavior. It's the attitude, the attitude you bring to your conversation, a Christ-like openness to engage, a willingness to risk, a commitment to stick with it, even if it's difficult. You see, we have been invited into the circle of God's love because of the courageous actions of Peter and then these believers in Jerusalem who finally saw the wisdom of what God was doing. Let them know that their efforts continue to bear fruit as we draw a bigger circle, as we welcome others, help them then to encounter the transforming grace of Jesus Christ. Let's pray lord jesus i thank you again for this powerful story from acts 10 and 11 about peter and then the response of the early church lord help us to be those who do keep our eyes open to see who's on the outside of the circle and to make our circle barrier porous so that we can welcome new people and we can draw a circle big enough out of god's love for us that we draw a circle big enough that can welcome people in where they too can then begin to encounter in authentic ways the grace and the love that we have experienced through Jesus Christ. Help us to be like a Squanto. Help us to be like a Peter who looks outside our circle and draws others in. In Jesus' name, amen.